0: Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientists Newsflash.
1: This is The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with Dominic Ford. And first up, let's take a look at some of this week's biggest scientific breakthroughs. The mineral quartz might hold the key to why continental plates consistently deform in certain regions. That's a puzzle that's remained hard to answer despite revolutions in our understanding of plate tectonics. Publishing in Nature, Anthony Lowry and Marta Perez-Gusini use data from the Earthscope Transportable Array. Now that's a programme that's steadily measuring seismic activity across the United States. They use that along with gravity and heat flow data to estimate the relative proportion of quartz in the crust and to look for geographic variation. The research took the relatively novel approach of mapping the ratio between pressure waves, they're called VP, they're the longitudinal like sound waves travelling through the crust, and shear waves, VS, they are transverse waves that make the crust move a little bit like ripples on a pond. This ratio is not a measure that's used often in research because it can be inaccurate and it's altered by a number of other factors such as crust thickness. So to iron out all of these inaccuracies, they combined the ratio values with established data from gravity surveys and from estimates of heat flow. The authors argue that a low VP to VS ratio, that's less than 1.8, correlates to high concentrations of quartz in the crust, and that because quartz is fragile and it's prone to flow at the sorts of temperatures found at depth, this actually encourages weak zones in the crust itself. Once these regions of weakness establish a deformation zone, this encourages further weakening processes such as the ingress of water or increased heat flow. Now, actually, this dynamic system would ensure that the crust consistently deforms in regions of high quartz and could even contribute to a weakening of the mantle layer below the crust, which further ensures a zone of weakness is maintained over many millions of years. Not only does this model elucidate the role of quartz in making mountain ranges, but it could also help to explain some of the more unusual types of earthquake, those that occur in the middle of continental plates, where there's little or no evidence of the fault lines that we usually associate with the more familiar and better understood earthquakes. This particular study only observes an area of the western United States, but the authors do inca- intend to keep monitoring the data as the Earth's scope moves east, and it will eventually measure activity across the entire country at 70 kilometre intervals. Also, looking at geologically active regions around the world could give us an even better idea about the role of quartz in sculpting our continents.
2: Dominic? Well there have been a lot of headlines this week about the Messenger spacecraft which has become the first probe ever to be launched into orbit around the planet Mercury. Now this is actually quite a historic milestone in our exploration of the solar system because this is the first time that we have actually had a spacecraft in orbit about Mercury able to image the whole of its surface. Now it's about 30 years since the Voyager spacecraft first visited the outer planets of the solar system. And over those three decades, our understanding of the planets of the solar system has really increased. But Mercury has always remained a slightly elusive planet. We didn't actually even have a map of more than half of its surface until Messenger first flew past a couple of years ago. And the reason why Mercury has been so elusive is that it's actually quite difficult to put a spacecraft into orbit around it. And that's because it's so close to the Sun. And if you're launching a probe from the Earth, it has to swoop down through the solar system to get to Mercury. And it's travelling incredibly fast when it gets there. It's like a ball rolling down a hill, going faster and faster. And if you want to go into orbit, you have to be moving slowly enough that you can be gravitationally captured by the planet. So up until now, only one spacecraft has ever been there. That was Mariner 10, back in 1974. But we have a lot to learn about Mercury. It's one of the four rocky planets. And we think these four rocky planets all started from a fairly similar starting point, but seem to have evolved in very different directions. We know that the Earth, obviously, seems to be an ideal place for life to develop. Mars seems to be similar. But because it has no magnetic field and a very thin atmosphere, Its surface is bathed in solar ultraviolet ionising radiation, and that makes it difficult for complex chemistry that you need for life. And so that's possibly why we haven't found life on Mars. Venus, we know, has a very thick atmosphere of carbon dioxide that's led to a runaway greenhouse effect and means its surface is a temperature of about 480 degrees and really far too hot for us to imagine life being there. But Mercury is the elusive planet because... It actually has a very strong magnetic field. Its surface is not as harsh as it might be. It's hot because it's close to the sun, but it's not, it's not so, so hot or so harsh. And we would like to understand where that magnetic field is coming from and about the rocks of Mercury. And it's hopefully in the next few years, as Messenger returns more detailed maps of the surface, that we'll really start to understand this enigmatic planet.
1: So it's achieved orbit around Mercury, which is a feat in itself, but what's it going to do now? Is it purely mapping the surface or is it taking other readings as well?
2: It's looking at maps of the topology of the surface and also at the chemistry and the geophysics, so looking at whether you have volcanoes and so forth on the surface, and that will help us to understand what this planet is made of. We think it possibly had quite a violent history because we think it must have quite a large iron core at its centre to give it its magnetic field. And that would suggest maybe it's an Earth-like planet, which has lost most of its mantle of rock, and is just the iron core at the centre that's left. Well, thank you
1: very much. We'll look forward to
2: hearing a bit more about
1: it. Also this week, a pair of papers in the journal Nature have shed some light on how human sperm cells react to the presence of progesterone, and this could lead to a whole new type of contraceptive. Steve Publicover from the School of Biosciences at the University of Birmingham penned a News and Views article linking the findings of these two papers, and he explained the implications to me.
0: It's been known for more than 20 years now, that progesterone, female hormone progesterone, which is produced by the cells that surround the oocyte and they, they help it to mature, and they're still surrounding it after it's been ovulated. So the the egg probably is descending the uh, the oviduct, surrounded by a kind of haze of progesterone so people looked at this ages ago and discovered that uh, progesterone induces a very rapid response in in human sperm, virtually uh, instant in as much as one can detect. And the primary mediator of that seems to be a very sudden rise in intracellular calcium concentration, which is a, an intracellular message. And that was very interesting for a number of reasons, partly because it clearly had potential significance for fertilization. And also because it was not what one expected steroids like progesterone to do. But what we did find out in the meantime was that there is very good reason for thinking progesterone matters in fertilisation. It regulates all sorts of things that we know are really important. And at last, they've given us a sort of clear, precise, mechanistic step involved in that. Whereas up till now, it's, it's been a black box, virtually.
1: So the sperm comes into contact with progesterone. What's the next stage? What actually happens?
0: Well, what progesterone does is induce a, an increase in the intracellular concentration of calcium ions, which are normally kept in cells very, very low. I mean, the cells spend quite a lot of energy mopping calcium up and pumping it out and keeping it very low. And rises in calcium concentration are used in every cell we know about as a um, conveyor of information, the size of the rise and the shape of the rise in terms of its kinetics, things like that. And in sperm they are, certainly calcium is very, very important for controlling how they swim and controlling a particular secretion event that they do called the acrosome reaction. And progesterone is sort of there as the sperm approach the egg. It may actually be there at, at very low concentrations other places as well. But certainly as the sperm swims right up to the egg, it's going to hit a wall of very high concentrations. And it seems to switch on all sorts of things. But progesterone is like a, a real sort of wake-up call. It presses a button, the sperm starts doing things.
1: So the presence of progesterone causes this sudden influx of calcium ions, or at least uh, a lack of pumping it out, and that obviously is a key stage in changing the behaviour of the sperm cells.
0: Yes. I mean, we've known that the signal, the change in calcium concentration, was there for ages because there are techniques for measuring concentration in cells which are optical, and therefore they've been quite nice for applying to sperm because the fact that sperm are small and tend to move about a bit doesn't stop you making the measurements, uh, and one of the things that's really key in this is, is what's in the Lischko and, and Kirichok paper, is that they developed a technique for applying uh, electrophysiological methods, methods that are used normally in recording the flux of ions across the membranes of nerve cells, and they managed to apply it to sperm, which are like an order of magnitude or so smaller and very, very difficult for various technical reasons to, to apply these techniques to. And they made it work, which meant they could actually measure flow of ions across the cell membrane and doing that uh, allowed them to be much more precise to characterize what was going on and to actually identify the fact that progesterone was activating a specific type of protein ion channel in the sperm membrane.
1: Does this particular membrane channel have any other role that we're aware of? Is it normally functioning in a very low level and then just gets ramped up by progesterone or is it exclusively for this purpose?
0: Up until now, we knew it was there and we knew it was exclusively expressed in sperm. So the channel's called cat uh, because it's a cation channel and it's only expressed in sperm. And we knew from various experiments that have also been done on mice that functioning of this channel is very important in regulating uh, the way the sperm swim. And if you produce mice where the gene that codes for this channel has been knocked out, they're still fairly healthy because the only thing that's not going to be working normally is the sperm. But, and the sperm look okay and they can move and they can swim, but they can't undergo a specific change in the way they swim, which is called hyperactivation. And it's a much more kind of aggressive way of swimming, which is switched on as they approach the egg. And it seems to be there to provide a kind of added power to get them through the layers that surround the egg in order they can get right through and and do the fusion event. And, In mice that haven't got this protein, they can't do that change in motility, and the result is they're completely sterile.
1: So now that we've shed a bit more light on this mechanism, can we start to find ways to use it to our own purposes? Could this be the new contraceptive?
0: I think in principle it certainly should be. It's an enormous opportunity because this is completely specific to sperm and nothing else. If you can produce a drug that hits this channel and nothing else then you've got a a perfect contraceptive. The channel itself belongs to a family, which is quite a large one, of voltage-operated channels of various sorts, and certainly some of the other ones are quite similar in their structure. And so finding a drug that's really specific to Casper may turn out to be quite difficult, but I guess in principle it certainly should be doable. And if, if, if that could be done, then you could certainly produce a drug that would give you a really nice male contraceptive.
1: Steve Publicover from Birmingham University. You can read Steve's News and Views article along with the two papers he discusses in this week's edition of the journal Nature. Now, our human eyes may have blinkered us to the way that other species see the world, and understanding how birds in particular see could help to reduce the number of fatal collisions with man-made objects such as wind turbines, power cables, or even buildings. Writing in the journal IBIS, Graham Martin argues that to cut down on these deaths, we need to see the world from a bird's eye view. Sadly, collision with man-made objects seems to account for the largest unintended human cause of avian fatalities worldwide, and many bird species are prone to collisions with structures that do appear very conspicuous to us. For example, behavioural observations have shown that the white-tailed sea eagles that live in Norway show absolutely no tendency to avoid wind turbine blades. They simply treat them as if they weren't there. Although some research has looked at these collisions from the perspective of flight behaviour and manoeuvrability, very little has actually been published on the visual and perceptive aspects of this problem. Assuming that the visibility of an object at a distance is the problem, most collision-reducing measures that we've put in place in the last 30 years have basically involved marking an object with flags or with reflective balls. But the probability of a collision still remains very high. It's clear that birds don't see the world in the same way as humans. There are distinct differences in eyeball anatomy, in the location of eyeballs on the head and in how signals are processed in the bird brain. Martin argues that in order to devise effective strategies, we must develop a sensory framework based around a bird's perception of the world. Now, we humans are used to the idea of being able to see directly in front of us. That's usually in the direction that we're travelling. But many birds are actually adapted for coverage alongside, above and even behind the head. This obviously can give them a much wider field of view, but it reduces the region of binocular vision that exists in the direction of travel. Now, lateral vision, vision to the sides, may play an important role in the detection of predators or in foraging for food, but it clearly comes at the expense of being able to see where they're going. Even incredible birds like the peregrine falcon, whose vision is good enough to enable them to pick other birds out of the sky, relies mainly on this lateral vision. They actually view prey from the side, and they only switch to the front-facing binocular vision when they're at very close range. So, what can be done to reduce collisions? Sadly, there's no catch-all answer, as what works for one species may be effectively invisible to another. But there are some general principles that might help. Very large, very high-contrast markers that employ some movement should be deployed around an obstacle, both on the ground nearby it as well as actually in front of it – It may also work to redirect flight paths. This may be even more effective than marking out things as hazards. But above all, understanding more about the specific species that are at risk and how they perceive the world could help to reduce these accidents. And if you’d like to read up on anything we’ve covered this week, the references and transcripts for each of these news stories we’ve discussed are online at thenakedscientists.com/news. The Naked Scientists Newsflash: Reacting to the World’s Best Science.
0: For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.